One of the things we do in January is we always kind of jump off and do, I call it kind of a standalone, kind of almost a faith and family series. Why? Well, one is, it's a topic that we need to talk about. It's about marriage. We called it all life long. Uh, and you say, well, I'm not married. It's okay. You're going to glean some stuff here. But marriages are under attack. They're, uh, man, they're, they're hurting. And, and I really want to dive into it in the month of January. Secondly, January is a time when people start you know, thinking, okay, how do, you know, the, what do they call it? The New Year's resolutions, right? I need to get back, right? People get out of the habit. You may not have heard this, but we had this thing called COVID. People actually got out of the habit to come, come to church. So this is sometimes when they go, hey, I need to get back in that habit. You want to invite some of those friends. Sometimes to invite them, come, hey, come listen to the study in the book of Hebrews. Not so exciting. Uh, but series on marriage, how to have a better marriage, how to build a strong, how to, how to prepare. Maybe you're not married and, and thinking about what are you going to be looking for. So really want to encourage you to do that. We'll do that. And then in February, we'll get back into Hebrews uh, starting with chapter 6. So if you got your Bibles this morning, Hebrews chapter 5, we're going to deal with these first 10 verses. Now in case, and of course I wasn't here last weekend, uh, but her wonderful time with our missionaries. But let me just give you the background to the book of Hebrews. The author is writing to a group of people who came up out of Judaism. So they come up under the law, and then they heard the grace of the gospel, that Jesus had died, Jesus had come and paid the penalty for our sins. He offers salvation as a free gift. They had come to faith in Christ. And, but now, as they follow after Christ, they are facing persecution, both from the Romans, but also from the from the Jewish community that they left, wanting them to, you know, why did you leave the law? And, and so they're, they're facing hard times. They're ostracized. And some of them, because of the suffering, some of them, because of the difficulty, are, are kind of pulling back. They're drifting away from the truth of the gospel. They're starting to want to step back under the law. And so the writer of the book of Hebrews is writing to encourage them to stay strong. And so he does this in two ways. Number one, he reminds them how Jesus is so far greater than the aspects of the law. So you go back to chapter one. He, he's a greater revelation of God than the Old Testament prophets because he himself is the radiance of his glory, the exact representation of his nature. He's better than the angels who are the ones who brought the law. He's better than Moses. And if you were here when Robbie dealt with that passage, because Moses is the man. But Jesus, you know, but Moses was a servant. Jesus is a son. So he's done it through expressing how Jesus is far better. He's also done it in expressing that when you and I follow Jesus, it comes with a great reward. So he's put in these warning passages reminding us that, that, that we, when we have walked faithfully with the Lord, that there comes with a great reward someday. So now, as we get to chapter 5, it actually starting a new section that's going to run for the next really through chapter 10. And it's this idea that not only is Jesus better than 
the Old Testament prophets, the angels, and Moses, but he is a better high priest, a far greater high priest than the earthly high priest. And by the way, he ministers in a far greater tabernacle because the one that he ministers in is in heaven. And so that's the gist of this, and that's what he's transitioning. Now, this idea that Jesus is a great high priest, a far greater high priest, he's actually already introduced. You go back to chapter 2, verse 17. Therefore, he had to be made like his brethren in all things so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God. He picks it back up in chapter 3, verse 1. Therefore, holy brethren, partakers of the heavenly calling, consider Jesus the apostle and high priest of our confession. In fact, just before he gets into chapter 5 here, he just said it again in verse 15. For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in all things as we are, yet without sin. And his whole point is, so therefore let us draw near to the throne of grace of Jesus. All right, so let's read the passage together. Hebrews 5, I'll read out loud if you'll follow along. For every high priest taken from among men is appointed on behalf of men in things pertaining to God in order to offer both gifts and sacrifices for sins. He can deal gently with the ignorant and misguided since he himself is also beset with weakness. And because of it, he is obligated to offer sacrifices for sins as for the people, so also for himself. And no one takes the honor to himself, but receives it whether he, when he is called by God, even as Aaron was. So also Christ did not glorify himself so as to become a high priest, but he who said to him, you are my son, today I begotten you, just as he says also in another passage, you are a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. And in the days of his flesh, he offered up prayers and supplications with loud crying and tears to the one able to save him from death, and he was heard because of his piety. And although he was a son, he learned obedience from the things which he suffered, and having been made perfect, he became to all those who, all, to all those who obey him the source of eternal salvation." being designated by God as a high priest according to the order of Melchizedek. So his point, his introduction, what he is laying out that he's going to talk about these next five chapters is that Jesus is a far greater high priest. And how he does this is he starts with the qualifications. What does it take to be a high priest? He gives us four things. We'll move through them rather quickly. The, thing, the first thing in verse 1 is they got to be a human, right? Every high priest taken from among men is appointed on behalf of men and things pertaining to God. A high priest could not be an angel. A high priest actually couldn't be God. He had to be a man because he's representing us to God and God to us. And so he had to be a human, right? So the incarnation, as you can probably tell, is going to be very important here. The second thing is, is that he has to offer sacrifices and offerings. The word that he uses here are gifts and sacrifices for sins. Most likely the idea of gifts here are the grain offerings, the liquid offerings that were given along with the 
the bulls and the goats and, and, and the lambs that were sacrificed uh, that were part of that. And so they made offering and, and presented the offering. So someone would bring their lamb. It was the priest who would slay it and put it on the altar, who would take the grain and would put it on the altar before the Lord. The third thing is, is that they must be compassionate. This is verses 2 and 3. He can deal gently with the ignorant and misguided since he himself also is beset with weakness and because he is obligated or because of it, he is obligated to offer sacrifices for sins for the people, so also for himself. So here the picture is kind of the day of atonement, that one time a year where the high priest could go into the Holy of Holies behind the curtain and he went in twice. The first time he went in with blood to sprinkle on the mercy seat for atonement, not for the people, but for himself, because he was a sinner. It was the reminder that for him and his family that they also were not perfect. They weren't all that. They needed atonement. And so it would remind them then of the people. And then they would go in a second time and bring the blood for that. But the idea was that they would be compassionate, that they would be sympathetic. Now, I would remind you by the time you get to the time of Jesus, uh, you don't really see with the priest and the high priest a very sympathetic, compassionate crowd. But that was God's ideal for the priest that they would have sympathy for those. And, and it's interesting, he uses the word that those are, that are ignorant and misguided. You go back to the Old Testament law, the sacrifices were not for those who walked in defiance against the law, but those who sinned either unknowingly or unwittingly, you know, that they just made a mistake. It was a temper, it wasn't this defiance piece. That's, they were to have sympathy for those and, and care for them. The last piece is that they were appointed by God. And this is verse four. And no one takes the honor to himself, but receives it when he called, is called by God, even as Aaron was. So if you grew up in the Old Testament and you're in high school and they're doing a career day for you, right? One of the boxes you could not check was, hey, I'd like to be a priest. You had to be called of God. You had to be of the right tribe, the tribe of Levi. And one of the things that you see is that when people tried to be a priest who were not called by God, it didn't go well. So do you remember when the children of Israel were traveling? They'd been to Mount Sinai. The tabernacle is not now built. And a man by the name of Korah, who, by the way, was a priest, but he was not the high priest. He couldn't go into the Holy of Holies, stood against Moses and Aaron and said, who made you the boss? We want to go and offer sacrifice into the Holy of Holies. And so God said, all right, let's all get together tomorrow and we'll figure this out. So, Corey, you get over there with your 250 and Moses and Aaron, you stand here. Do you all remember what happened? The ground opened up, swallowed Korah and all those who rebelled against him and closed it back in. Now, I don't mind dying, but that's not how I'd like to go. No, you have to be called to God. Do you remember King, uh, King Saul was going to go fight against the Philistines? And Samuel said, go, go to uh, Bethel and I'll come and make sacrifice. And then he, he didn't show up. I, I, he must have been a, you know, like the first Desert Springs person. He was late, right? He didn't show. He didn't show. Finally, you know, the army's beginning to scatter. And finally, finally 
uh, King Saul says, give me the sacrifice. And he went and made the sacrifice, and he wasn't a priest. And God said, okay, I'm taking the kingdom away from you, and I'm giving it to somebody more worthy. There was another king later on by the name of Uzziah who actually followed the Lord for a while, but his heart was lifted in pride, and he wanted to go in and offer incense in the holy place. Not the holy of holies, but the holy place. And he went in, and all the priests are going in trying to get him out, and he's, no, I'm here, and he offers incense. Leprosy breaks out. And he actually has leprosy the rest of his life. You don't choose this. God chooses you. Those are the qualifications. Well, his point here is that Jesus is our fully qualified high priest. That when you look at these four things, it's going to take them in a little different order than he presented them. But when you look at these four things, Jesus meets every criteria. Number one, here in verse five, so also, that's the transition. Christ did not glorify himself so as to become a high priest, but he who said to him, you are my son, today I have begotten you, just as he also said in another, another passage, you are a high priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. So if you haven't been with this, what the author's quoting right there in verse 5 is a verse out of the Old Testament. It's Psalm chapter 2. He's already quoted it back in chapter 1 talking about Jesus is the son. Right, So God said, today you are my son, today I've begotten you. And because he's the son, it has to do with kingship. It has to do with authority. But now he goes to Psalm 110, which he also quoted in chapter 1. But he takes a different verse. It's verse 4 out of Psalm 110. And it reads like this. The Lord is sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever according to the order of so looking ahead, Psalm 110 was a messianic song. Looking ahead that he was going to be a priest after the order of Melchizedek. Now, I don't want to get too far ahead because we're going to learn a lot about Melchizedek in, in chapter 7. So um, just really quickly, by the way, don't name your kid Melchizedek. You're looking for a Bible name, right? Because I almost look like an I chart there, right? M-E-L-C-H, right? But Melchizedek is a very interesting character in the Old Testament. He only appears for a very short period of time back in the book of Genesis. Abraham um, went to rescue Lot, and when he came back, he meets this guy by the name of Melchizedek. And Melchizedek, what we're told, is that he's both a priest of the Most High God, and he is the king of Salem, which we know better as Jerusalem. And so Abraham now gives him a tithe that he now presents as a sacrifice to the Lord. And so the idea is, is that as Melchizedek was a priest, Jesus, God has said that the Messiah will also be a priest, but not after the order of the Levites, after the order of Melchizedek. And you go, well, what's the big thing? Well, see, there was a problem. To be a ruler in Israel, you had to be of the tribe of, excuse me, Judah, line of David. To be a priest, you had to be of the tribe of Levi. In fact, in the time of Christ, in the time that this book was written, there was a group of, of Jewish 
uh, very faithful people called the Essenes. They lived down in Qumran. So if you, if you ever go to Israel, you go to the Qumran caves where they found the Dead Sea Scrolls. And they used to copy scripture. And, and it's down by the Dead Sea. It's, it's a fascinating place. But there, as they studied scripture, they saw this. A king and a priest. How does that work? One of the tribe of Judah, one of the tribe of Levi. They don't mix. And so there was actually a theory that they put forth that when Messiah came, Messiah would not be one, but Messiah would be two people. One, a political king, Messiah, and the other, a religious, so that one could be of the tribe of Judah and one the tribe of Levi. And what the, what the author is saying, no, 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 Jesus is a far greater high priest because he's not a high priest out of the tribe of Levi. He's after the order of Melchizedek, and he's going to expand upon that. But one of the big things is, is that you are a priest forever. The priest of Levi tribe, they weren't priests forever. In fact, what was it, age 50, they had to quit serving as a priest. They could help, but they couldn't serve anymore. The high priest would die, but Melchizedek was a priest forever. Jesus is fully qualified to be our high priest. The third thing is, is that he, he mentions here is that he became a man. Verse, or excuse me, the second thing. In verse 7, in the days of his flesh, he offered up both prayers. In the days of his flesh, this has been something that's already been alluded to, right? You go back to Hebrews chapter 1. So Jesus came and it is the radiance of his glory, the exact representation of his nature. Then you get to chapter 2 and you see how he, he says to him that uh, he, in verse 9, that he's been made a little lower than the angels, right? He became a man. Verse 14, therefore, of chapter 2, therefore, since the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise also partook of the same, that through death he might render power. Jesus became one of us. He was a man. That's why the incarnation is so important. And what we celebrate here at Christmas is so crucial that God became a man, one of us, so that he could be a faithful high priest. The third thing that he talks about is that they, what a priest does is he offers prayers and sacrifice. And so what he says is in the days of his flesh, he offered up, by the way, same word that he used back in verse 1, that the, um, in order to offer both gifts and sacrifice, this is what Jesus did, he offered up both prayers and supplications with loud crying and tears to the one able to save him from death, and he was heard because of his piety, his, his reverence. So when Jesus was here, he served as a high priest. Now, we, we think, we, of course, and the whole heart of the book of Hebrews is that he gave his life as a sacrifice, right? With his blood, that atonement has been made. But it's interesting, he starts here with prayer. And the author of Hebrews has this sense that when you and I pray, it's actually sacrifice. And in chapter 13, verse 15, he says, Through him, then, let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God. That is, the fruit of our lips, and give thanks in his name. So as Jesus prayed, and of course, it leads us to Gethsemane, right? 
is Jesus prayed. And Jesus prayed what? Father, if it be your will, let this cup pass from me. This, this sense that he was going to have to stand in our place. And, and then you read what he says here. Supplications with loud crying and tears, the anguish in his heart. You think of what Luke tells us, that, that his you know, sweat became like drops of blood. And then you see him at the cross and his prayer on the cross, Father, forgive them for they don't know what they're doing. Jesus is acting as a high priest. Now to me, what is really fascinating is he tells us what he prayed with supplication while praying in tears to the one able to save him from death. Now the word save means to deliver. Doesn't mean to keep from. And when you think about that, to save him from death, what's he thinking about there? For you and I, I think where we typically run is that it's the physical death on the cross. And I'm sure Jesus wasn't looking forward to that. When Jesus prays, Father, let this cup pass from me, we think the crown of thorns. We think the 39 lashes. We think being nailed to the cross. I don't really think that's what Jesus was asking about. I think Jesus was dealing with the idea of spiritual death there. Now, I'm going to be honest with you. Every time I bring this up, I get more pushback to this than about anything else that I put, I say. Because people don't like to think about this. But let me challenge you on this. When Jesus came to the cross to be our atonement, he had to face our penalty, right? What was our penalty? Our penalty is death. Death means separation. There's two pieces to it. There's spiritual death. We're separated from God. There's physical death. You say, well, well, how do you know that? Well, go to the garden. God said the day you eat of the tree, you will die, right? The day you eat of the tree, you die. So they ate the fruit of the tree. Did they physically die that day? No. Adam lived to be over 900 years old. But did they spiritually die that day? The answer is yes. Their relationship with God was changed. They are driven from his presence. Sin now separates. The relationship is different. An angel is put there to guard the garden so they could not come back in. They were separated from God on that day because of their sin. Well, Jesus is now going to come and bear the penalty that I deserve, which is not just physical death, but it is separation from God. And so when Jesus goes to the cross, you remember what happens at noon. It's almost as though the father turns his back on his son. Darkness comes for three hours. At the end of the three hours, Jesus cries out, what? It's from Psalm 22. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? As Jesus took our sin, the one who had had eternal relationship with the Father, that relationship now had changed. He faced that for you and for me. 
who through loud crying and tears to the one able to save him from death, and he was heard because of his piety. God answered his prayer. How did God answer his prayer? God answered his prayer in the it is finished. The debt is paid. The sun begins to shine again. The veil in the temple is rent in two. Into your hands I now commit my spirit, right? Everything is where it now should be again. And oh, by the way, he also answered that prayer in physical death on Easter Sunday morning with the resurrection. Because of his reverence to God to be obedient even to the point of death, God heard his prayer and God delivered him. And so now what we can see is that he can be a sympathetic and compassionate high priest. You know, this thought really started the end of chapter 14, you know, with the double negative. We do not have a high priest who cannot touch our sympathy. The the point is, we have a sympathetic high priest, right? He knows our weaknesses. He, He took on human flesh. He faced temptation, yes, without sin, but he faced temptation. And he can be our sympathetic. That's why he's qualified to be our great high priest. Now, he uses two expressions here, though, that are quite interesting. In verse 8 and 9, although he was a son, he learned obedience from the things he suffered. And having been made perfect. Oh, wait a minute. Wasn't Jesus the perfect son of God? Had he ever been disobedient? What does it mean he learned obedience? And by the way, what is it that God could possibly learn? Doesn't God know all? And what does it mean that he was made perfect? Was Jesus not perfect? No, no, no. This, this, is, this is good. When we talk about he learned obedience, think, think what Luke tells us about the 12-year-old Jesus, that he grew in wisdom and stature, right? There's a part of this that it is hard for us to understand, that union, fully God, fully man. But Jesus, in all the eons of history, walking in perfect obedience, never had to suffer because of obedience to the Lord until the incarnation. Now he lays aside his royal robes. He, he descends. He takes on human flesh. He goes to the cross. He suffers to do the will of God. Think about who he's talking to here. He's talking to believers like you and I who are suffering, who are being persecuted because of their faith. They're, and because of that, they're wanting to turn away from obedience to follow Jesus with their full heart. And what he's trying to say is he experientially, even though he was perfect, he had never disobeyed, but he experientially touched what you also are going through, the suffering that takes to do the will of God, to follow after the Father, to be obedient to his will. And in that, he was made perfect. The, the word there has the idea of complete. He became our faithful high priest. In fact, what's interesting, the root of the word made perfect is the root of the word that Jesus said when he was on the cross. It is finished. To die. It's done. It's complete. 
And when Jesus in obedience has suffered all of that, he was made perfect. He completed the goal to become a faithful and compassionate and loving and sympathetic high priest. So now we can come to the throne of grace in our time of need and find mercy and grace to help. Real quickly, that last phrase. And having been made perfect, he became to all those who obey him the source of eternal life. Now we look at that and, and of course, man, of course, very deep, right? Man, so great. So Jesus was obedient. He suffered death. He became, he was obedient uh, through, made perfect through suffering. He went to the cross and through his death, burial on the cross, man, we, we have eternal life, right? That, that's kind of the sense. And, and as, you, as you first read it, right? And that's theologically sound. There's nothing wrong with that. It's just I don't think that's really what he's saying in this context. Remember, we say all the time, context is king. So what does it mean that he is, he is eternal salvation? Well, how else has the author of Hebrews used the term salvation? We've talked about this multiple times already. When you and I think salvation, we think justification. We think our sins are forgiven. We're made right with God, right? It comes by faith. We're given eternal life. Yet if you'll remember back in chapter 1, verse 14, he talks about how angels are sent to minister to those who will inherit salvation. It's future. It's reward. We saw it in chapter 2. How shall we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? Same word. And we talked about how he even tells us two verses later, he's not talking about justification. He's not talking about being washed from our sins. What he's talking about, the salvation that we can't, we can't neglect, is the salvation which is to come. The time when we stand before the Lord and the reward and the inheritance. And then you think of the context that this comes out of. It's chapter 4. He's talked about rest. And if you were with us, we talked about how this rest represents our reward, our inheritance. When we have walked faithful before the Lord. It's not about salvation, but it is about future reward. And that really is the kind. In fact, he ends chapter 4 with changing now into the, we have a great high priest who's merciful, is be diligent. Be diligent to enter the rest. Be faithful. Don't shrink back. Don't turn away. That's the heart of all these warning passages. Here's the other reason I'm pretty sure he's not talking about justification here. He becomes to all who obey the source of eternal life. Well, let me ask you, do we get eternal life through obedience? By our good works? By our try to keep all the little aspects of the law? Is that how we get saved? We are saved by faith, right? Not of works, lest any man should boast. But he specifically says here, obey. What's he trying to say? Well, that's the whole point. 
When he says eternal salvation here, he's not talking about justification. Salvation, and I want to be so clear on this. Salvation, being washed clean in the blood of Christ, becoming a child of God, having heaven as your home, does not come by works. It comes by faith in Jesus. Jesus paid it all. And all we do is put our faith and our trust in him and he gives us eternal life. But to everyone who has heaven, to everyone who is a child of God, there is a promise that if we walk faithfully before him, Jesus is now that source of eternal reward. When we stand before him, fact is exactly what he experienced i told you when we started this book i come to believe and i'm more convinced today than i even was then that if you had to boil this book down to just like two verses it would be hebrews 12 1 and 2 looking unto jesus the author and finisher of our faith who for the joy set before him future endured the cross he suffered despised the shame It was tough, but he's now sat down at the right hand. Father, that's what he's calling us to. Folks, the way that you and I live today matters. There is great reward. We're not talking about heaven and hell. That is based upon faith and knowing Jesus. If you've not come to put your faith in him, that's where that is found. But for those of us that know him, we have the privilege to enter into his rest. We have the beauty before us that if we will walk faithfully before him, not turn to the left, not turn to the right, not drift away, not pull back, but take up our cross and follow Jesus. Oh. Man, that there is great reward that he promises to all his children who follow him with a whole heart. I was thinking about how these readers, these audience would have read this, right? They're facing persecution. They're facing suffering. Keep on. Keep on. There's great reward when you live for, in the future, when you live for Jesus today. In fact, you know, for us, the reality is, as much as we, as we think there is, we don't face persecution. Not much suffering. You know what we face? Distraction. Comfort. Ease. His word to us is just as important. Walk with Jesus. Put your eyes on Jesus. Follow Jesus with your whole heart. You know him. You're his child. You know you're going to heaven. Great. That's awesome. But how you live for him today has great value. Not only today, but in the life to come. Because he has become the source of eternal inheritance, a reward. And that's why, that's why we need to know he's our great high priest. He's one of us. He understands our weakness. He's compassionate. 
but we can come to him for grace and strength and wisdom and counsel so that we can follow him and he's there to give it to us.